Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you will know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host for Eight Words or Less. And welcome back to to anyone who's joining us. This week, Sammy will be telling us his central message, supported by three underlying arguments. The book, Great by Choice by Jim Collins and co-authored by Morton Hansen. So Jim Jim Collins is one of these individuals who's so well known, he doesn't really need an introduction. He has authored six books that have sold more than 10 million copies worldwide, which I think is pretty impressive. And it's quite interesting how he describes himself as both as a student and a teacher of what makes great companies tick. And he's very research-focused. He spent over 25 years focusing purely on researching on this topic and then writing about it. He's also a a passionate rock climber, and analogies of this often come through in his writing. And as well as having his own stellar career, he also took time out to support his wife's triathlon career as she went on to win an Ironman back in 1995. So I think some of these guys really take power couple to the next level. Absolutely. So I think it's a really interesting choice of book that you've made, Sammy, because it's so relevant for this time. The question that this book tries to answer is that why do some companies thrive in chaos while others do not? And this is a question that all leaders at this time of any organization should be asking themselves. And actually, as you start reading the book, even in the first sentence, it says, think back 15 years ago and think what's happened since. I don't know about you, Sammy, but you could you could say today, think back 15 days ago and think yeah. what happened since. And there's that much uncertainty. So, so this question of why do some organizations succeed is, is so important. As you might expect of a book with authors of this caliber, it's incredibly well-researched. They start with what they call a short list of 20,400 companies, which in my book counts as a long list, not a short list. (laughs) They start with this group and they filter it through 11 rounds of cuts to arrive at a final list of just seven companies that the authors call 10x cases. And they do this because of two reasons. One, that they beat the industry indexes consistently by at least 10 times, and that they did this during periods of rapid change and uncertainty. And crucially, they don't just look at these companies, they set up a comparison set of other companies so that they can look at the two and they can ask, what did the 10x companies do differently that allowed them to succeed while the others failed? And One of the analogies they use, which I think is fantastic, is between Scott and Amundsen in the race to the South Pole. Now, obviously, both of these teams, they were going at the same time. They were facing similar circumstances in a similar environment, but they had wildly different results in the outcome. The authors argued that it was the behaviors of the leaders and the teams that made the difference between life or death, not the external environment. And the authors then draw parallels between this analogy and that of the 10x companies and the comparison sets. And through these comparisons, they come with a number of insights. And they also, uh, in the words of the author, debunk some common myths. For example, the idea that leaders need to be bold, risk-seeking visionaries. However, 
when they looked at this, they said that the reality is very different. Successful characteristics are more aligned to being disciplined, to being empirical, and, and the word they use, paranoid as well. So I'm looking forward, Sammy, to hearing your central message. I'm, I'm sure that there are several themes coming through the book that you're going to pick up on. And when I read these, they, they ranged across being disciplined, being empirical in your creativity. I love the idea of firing bullets and not cannibals and staying vid- vigilant. But I think it's a great one to look. And I think the times we're going through, it's just excellent to be asking ourselves these type of questions. You know, why are some organizations successful? Well, it's a 300-page book. As you say, loads of research went into it. And I have narrowed it down to a central message of, well, in less than eight words, I've managed five words. And the central message of this book is go slow to go fast. Yeah. And I have three petals, three arguments to support that five word central message. My first petal is plan for black swan events. Now, a black swan is a huge event. It's unpredictable. Um, It has a major effect like 9-11 and, of course, like COVID-19. So what the researchers, the authors were saying when they looked at these 10X or 10Xer companies, who, as you say, James, beat the industry standard by at least 10 times, they said that even though you can't predict a black swan event before it hits, they do know that one will happen even though it is yet unspecified. So in other words, 10Xers understand they cannot reliably and consistently predict what those future black swan events will look like, but they obsessively prepare ahead of time, all the time, and importantly, even when times are good. Uh, They ask questions like, what's the worst case scenario? What could happen to us? What are the consequences? Do we have a contingency plan in place? Uh, What is the upside or downside of that decision? And indeed, what's the likelihood of that decision eventuating? So these 10X companies, they maintain hypervigilance. They stay attuned to threats and changes in the environment, even when things are going well. And they assume that the tide will turn. They expect it to turn. And they channel that into action. Uh, they talk about being paranoid. That word doesn't really resonate for me. So let's use again hypervigilant instead, or being attuned, preparing contingency plan, and building buffers. I actually quite liked the use of the word paranoid because when I was reading it, they particularly were talking about productive paranoia. And I thought it was an interesting way of looking at it. They talked about the example of Bill Gates hanging a photo of Henry Ford in his office to remind himself that even the greatest entrepreneurs are not infallible. And I think you also see a lot of this, Sammy, across the tech industry in particular, that Jeff Bezos has this day one philosophy where he says they have to be operating consistently as if they're in the day one of their business because day two means being in stasis and this is quickly followed by decline and death, as he says. And it's almost a sort of a paranoia about what happens if they're not planning, thinking forwards, preparing for change. They will end up losing that energy and and um, and failing as a result. The other example that I read recently, which I thought was just really interesting, did you read that Wimbledon had been paying since the outbreak of SARS, and they had been paying two million a year. Uh, for pandemic insurance. And, you know, every year I can imagine there were some people who were questioning the wisdom of that decision. But uh, I read that it's going to be paying out about $140 million 
uh, given they've had to cancel Wimbledon for for COVID nineteen. So I, it's wow. an interesting example of of being paranoid and and being very specific about it. Um, and within our own world, I, I, I've been managing a large team through this uh, experience, and it's given me a new appreciation of the importance of contingency planning. If that mentality of preparing. Uh, some mm. of it came from the 08-09 crisis in terms of stress testing and ensuring that you had the relevant buffers. But it's also from an operational perspective about knowing where your contingency sites are, who are critical roles, what are the critical services that you need to be able to provide in the event of a, of a, um, a crisis. That mentality has enabled us to react quicker and continue to provide our services to clients across the world in very challenging circumstances. This resonates for me. In my last corporate job, I was based in the Middle East and North Africa, looking after a region of 12, I would say, small markets for a huge global, a universal organization. Uh, but those 12 markets in the Middle East and North Africa were complex with a narrative of political unrest and conflict. So across them were only 8,000 full-time employees. We were asking those questions, what if, what if, what if? Because it wouldn't be surprising for us to come into work and hear that a branch manager in Egypt had been held at gunpoint. Or overnight, there was a change in the government of a certain country. So the mentality in Middle East and North Africa kind of got me into thinking about black swan events, going slow, asking those questions, building the buffers, and making sure that you're prepared for something that you know will happen, but you've not yet defined exactly what it is. And that's why go slow to go fast. And my second petal is called the 20 mile march. So the theme about the 20 mile march is just being consistent and chipping away at something day by day. Um, so imagine you are in San Diego, you have your feet in the Pacific Ocean, and you're about to embark on a hiking journey of 3,000 miles to go to the tip of Maine. So on the first day, you set off and you're excited. You could do more than 20 miles, but you honor the 20 mile march. And the second and third day, you continue, but you start to enter the desert and it becomes more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And you are inclined to take it easy. You're beginning to get blisters, your feet hurt. But you decide every day to chip away and do 20 miles. And you get to the Colorado mountain. It's freezing. Uh, you want to stay in your tent. And believe me, I know I went to Tibet in January. But you decide to do 20 miles. Now, compare the individual who does a 20-mile march with the person who leaves San Diego and is excited, does 40 or 50 miles on the first day. But when it gets hot, that person decides to take a rest. Uh, the weather cools down, so hunkers down, waiting for spring, and then starts to do 30, 40, 50 miles. By the time the second person is in Kansas City, the first person is already in Maine. 10Xs were the companies that exemplified the 20-mile march concept. You might have thought that they respond to volatile, fast-changing world by pursuing aggressive growth strategies and making radical big leaps, catching and riding each wave. But actually, there is an inverse correlation between pursuit of maximum growth and 10X success. There is this myth, as we were saying, that faster is always better that you are quick or you die. And actually, 
what's emerging from the research of this 10x companies is this 20 mile march concept of just chip away at something consistently go slow and you will go fast in the long term. And I'm writing a book at the moment. I'm in the final stages. As you know, James, it's torture. And there are days where I just don't want to do anything or the days that I'm creatively inspired and could do more. And the 20 mile march concept has just helped me to every day chip away at something. And that's yeah. why central message, go slow to go fast. Yeah. And and I mean, for me, something as I was reading, I really enjoyed this analogy. Perhaps Perhaps because I'm by nature quite impatient. So so actually, I probably often fail to learn from this. And, and it was, as I was reading it, it was almost slightly an epiphany. And it actually reminded me, because in my younger days, I used to run uh, marathons and ultramarathons. And one of the first that I did was was a 100-kilometer race in Hong Kong called the, the Macalhose. So mm-hmm. I was, I think, 25. I was in good shape. I was young. I was probably a little bit cocky. And I remember after about sort of 10 kilometers or so, I, I was passing a team of, I think it was the firefighters, and they were known to be amongst the, the strongest teams that were running these races. And so I think I think I was even stupid enough to to, to smile and, and say something to them as I jogged past. And this, this slightly older guy at the time just looked at me and, and smiled and said, we'll see you later. And, yeah, but uh, hubris. Exactly. <laughs> And I think, uh, I don't know, seven, eight hours later, as I was sort of collapsing on the side, they jogged past me going exactly the same speed as they had at the start of the race. And they jogged past me and, and you know, there was not even a chance that I was then catching them up. And I mean, it was just a good example of the fact you can you can start fast and you can think that you are uh, able to keep that pace, but actually keeping a consistent and disciplined uh, pace is more effective. And in the book, they talk about three factors as to why it's important as uh, the fact that it builds confidence, it maintains your self-control, and it prevents overly ambitious goals from, from mm-hmm. being detrimental. And I think you see, you see this discipline being effective in a lot of companies. One that really uh, did occur to me was Pret-a-Manger. They took five years with just one store and five years to make sure that the quality of their food was there, that the processes, that the the whole proposition worked. And then they started to open up the subsequent stores and obviously grew at an incredible pace. But I thought it was a good example of, of to, to use your central message, going slow to go fast. Yep. Slow and steady wins the race after all. So yeah, go slow to go fast. And my third and final petal, uh, James, is about being one fad behind. So particularly in the last episode, we were looking at Peter Hinson's The Day After Tomorrow. I had anticipated that innovation would be a primary distinguishing factor for this 10x success. But actually, the author's research showed it's good to be one fad behind and it's not always going to benefit you to be fast and to be that first mover in the market. And the example they use is Southwest Airlines actually didn't innovate low-cost travel. It was an airline that preceded Southwest called PSA, which of course no longer exists, that was the innovator of the low-cost travel movement. What Southwest Airlines did was it took the concept, it watched the mistakes that PSA did, and of course learned from the stuff that it did very well, and then was super focused on what it was and what it was not. 
So the authors talk about a SMAC recipe, S-M-A-C, and it's an acronym for Specific, Methodical and Consistent. Southwest Airlines was one fad behind, but it had this SMAC recipe and it was specific, methodical and consistent in everything it did. And until COVID-19 had posted 47 years consecutive profits in a market of, I mean, think about it, fuel shocks, deregulation, air traffic control, labor strikes, crippling recessions. We spoke about 9-11. Yeah. So, uh, of course, let's see what happens in COVID-19. But they were really specific on their strategy. Short haul, they weren't going to enter the long haul markets. They weren't going to invest in a premium economy or a business class product. It was all economy. Choose your own seat on board. Uh, They stuck with a 737 aircraft. Uh, They didn't invest in cargo as well. So they knew exactly what their strategy was, and they consistently followed that, but also their values. So Southwest Airlines values are famous in the values and culture space, which, as you know, I specialize in warrior spirit, fun-loving attitude, and servant's heart. And the late Herb Kelleher, who was the co-founder of Southwest Airlines, you know, he he just absolutely embedded the values into everything he did. I guess he's the only airline president you would find who turned up to maintenance hangars at two o'clock in the morning wearing a flowered hat, feather boa, and a purple dress. So he really lived the values of an airline. But not just Southwest Airlines. I've been re- looking at Disney Plus um, of course, behind Netflix and Amazon Prime. But what Disney Plus has achieved in the last five months, being a fad behind, uh, it took Netflix seven years to achieve that. So I think across different sectors and geographies, you see the benefit of this one fad behind concept. In other words, go slow to go fast. I think it also links into the concept, the analogy they use in a book around the bullets and the cannibals. is trying to find out what is working by firing off these lots of bullets and then understanding, you know, which is the most relevant for your business and then firing your calibrated cannibal, as the author said, mm. which is which is then putting in much more investment and innovating far more, you know, even if that is not as a first mover. Um, and I think you see it in a lot of companies, as you say, Google is another famous one with uh, purchasing of Android. They were behind in the smartphone market um, and quickly caught up through an acquisition and through then intense investment. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I understood it was also, it's not don't innovate. It's about get your house in order, like your Pret-a-Manger example, James. I used to work for a major airline in the Middle East, and it was from 1985 to around 2003, 2004, before the airline invested into mass expansion. Um, But it got at its wards. It, It managed to have its business structure. It embedded the values of the organization, and then it took advantage. And similarly, Southwest Airlines had the chance to go to so many different airports in the U.S., but it got to the stage where 100 airports were approaching it, paying for Southwest to come into their markets, to their airports, their cities, mm. before it went into a uh, into a big expansion. And that's why, well, James, what, what's the central message? This one's an easy one, I think, uh, Sammy. The central message is... Go slow to go fast. 100%. And the power of it just being five words. It's tricky, though, as I said at the beginning of our episode, uh, 300 pages, but getting it down into uh, into eight words or less isn't easy. But what's great is some of our listeners are starting to use a hashtag, eight words or less, and they're saying that they're bringing this concept into 
the virtual meetings that they're running, they're asking leaders to surmise the central message of a one-hour meeting into eight words or less. So it's great to see a little bit of a movement, but just really being intentional on what is it that you want your audience to understand and remember. And uh, yeah, go slow to and go fast. Thank you, Sammy. A uh, really interesting discussion, really interesting uh, points, very relevant for this time. And thank you to everyone who's listening. As always, please feel free to leave any comments, uh, contact us and, and share any books you would like us to look at. Next episode I, it will be my turn. I'm looking at a book called The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which again, I think is very relevant for the time we're going through now. So looking forward to sharing my central message with you, Sammy, on that. Absolutely. Black Swan inspired, no doubt, by the Black Swan events that we talked about in Petal One. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thanks also to a gentleman called Marko Kovacevic. He's a global business leader based in Serbia. He recommended the Great by Choice book for us to look at. So if you want to recommend books, again, use the hashtag. We're on all the social media platforms. And of course, if you want to hear more, make sure you search for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download yours. Bye for now. <laughs>